It's not an easy thing to find that right balance of how we exist within a culture and how we are different from that culture. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning leads us into another observation of some things that the early church got right and some things that they got wrong in trying to process that fine line that we walk. Uh, this morning we're going to read from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. You can either read along with me or, or let me read for you. Luke is the author of the Acts of the Apostles, and this is what he writes in chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful morning. Thank you for your presence with us. It's amazing as we look back in some of these scriptures and see the way that you specifically guided people. And we ask that you would continue to guide us today. We realize that there are a number of ways that you speak. You speak through your word. Sometimes you speak through your people. Sometimes in those moments when we're meditating on some nugget of truth or on your nature or on something from the word of God, you whisper to us or give us an impression, either affirming a decision that we're about to make or nudging us in a new direction. We long, each of us, to know that you approve of who we are and of what we're doing and of decisions that we're making. And so we ask that you would continue to whisper into our lives. We ask that in the quiet moments here in this place, when we focus on your word, when we've entered an atmosphere of worship, that you would grab a hold of our minds and our hearts, either using the message or the scripture that we're focusing on to 
convey something to us or to grab a hold of us and, and to whisper something new that we weren't yet even prepared for you to say this morning. We pray for wisdom as we navigate the world in which we work in. There are people whom we manage or work beside or work beneath who matter to you. And how we carry out our work, therefore, is of great importance. There are people who live nearby us, and they watch who we are and what we do, and they watch our every word. They listen. We pray that you give us opportunities to encourage, to nudge them in the right direction, to share our stories, to invite people into what you're doing in our own lives. Lord, there are people here in the midst of our congregation who are hurting, they're carrying a burden that probably nobody else even knows about, a health crisis, a family situation that's troubling, a friend who's wandered into trouble and they're trying to walk alongside and be that word of wisdom and provide that, that word of, of direction. We get tired from all these things. We wonder sometimes when you will act, and we get frustrated because we don't understand your timing. Increase our patience. Increase our ability to persevere, to hold on, to wait for your timing rather than to run ahead. We pray that as we look into your word that you would give us insight into understanding it, but also that you would help us to understand how we are to proceed in our time. Give us uncommon grace with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends, maybe even more so with our family, that we can model the changed lives that you've called us to. We pray for breakthroughs in the areas where we are stuck or where we've been resistant or we keep falling down and doing the same things that we regret over and over again. Give us the next dose of grace that we need to get back up and to keep fighting, to keep moving forward. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a sense that, that you're with us and that your pleasure rests on your people. Use us in the right way, as imperfect as we are, use us in, in ways that are in measure with our spiritual gifts and with the talents you've given us and with the opportunities before us. Use us to build somebody else up. Use us to speak that word of encouragement. Use us to invest in somebody else and to make a difference. Use us to notice the person who's younger and longs for somebody to walk beside them with a little bit of age and wisdom and experience so that together we'll be stronger. And now we ask that you'd, you'd make this message clear and that you'd drive some principle home to each one of us at the point of our need. In Jesus' name, amen. As my wife Sue was driving to our house and turning into our driveway yesterday, she noticed that the police had pulled over a younger driver who seemed to be caught speeding. Well, you need to know, if you ever come to visit at our house, 
that we live near a built-in speed trap. Our house is positioned at the crest of a, of a small hill, and people seem to fly on the straightaway that leads to that hill, and just below that hill, there's a quiet spot where the police like to pull over, and they'll often hide. And they just wait for somebody driving too fast, coming up and over the hill. They never saw the police car, and bam, they got them. That natural speed trap got me thinking. Have you ever noticed that the person who is driving slower than you is always a jerk? <laughs> and the person who drives faster than you is always a maniac? Forgive me if I passed you this morning on the way to church. <laughs> now, if you identify with this phenomenon at all, you have actually fallen into the little speed trap that I just set up for you. The reason why we are prone to think that the person who drives slower than us is a jerk and the, the person who drives faster than us is always a maniac stems from our natural tendency to form our own internal patterns of bias. And we fit people into these, these neat little boxes that we create. Psychology today states that a bias is a tendency, inclination, or prejudice toward or against something or someone else. Now, some of these biases can be helpful, like a bias toward eating food sources that seem to be healthy, can steer us away from food choices that we quickly see are not so good for us. Yet other forms of bias can be based on prejudgments that lead to rash decisions or discriminatory practices. And I gather that this is something that most of us here don't want to be known for and, and, and we don't want to engage in. Now, now here's why I bring all of this to your attention today. This morning we're going to look at a case in the early church where a long-standing cultural bias was acting like a roadblock that was restricting the expansion of the Christian community. And the person who was caught in this trap initially was Peter, one of the most prominent of the disciples of Jesus. Only when Peter agreed to reassess his biases toward non-Jewish people would he be able to envision how God loves people from every nation and be prepared for what God was about to do next through his ministry. Now, in case that you may have missed a few of the last couple of weeks, this month in March, we're in a series of messages that we're calling Affirmative. The subtitle is Saying Yes to God, and, and we're, we're learning about people who have said yes to God at key moments in the past and trying to discern lessons that help equip us for knowing when to say yes to God or, or how to be prepared to say yes when God surprises us with his next assignment. So far, we've learned about saying yes to God from Esther, a Jewish beauty queen who was living in ancient Persia, from Barnabas, who developed a lifestyle of saying yes to God, and from Ananias, an ordinary Christ follower whom Jesus directed to bless Saul of Tarsus, who until that point had been an enemy of the early church. Here's the key for today. Today we're going to see how the Lord expanded Peter's vision for an expansive, multi-ethnic church. It was something totally different than he had conceived of up to that point. This chapter starts with some clashing perspectives, and we're introduced to two people right at the beginning. The first is a man named Cornelius, and we discover that Cornelius was a seeker who was looking for direction. The first two verses of Acts 10 read this way, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need 
and prayed to God regularly. Until we meet Cornelius, the disciples of Jesus were pretty much staying in their lane. They'd been spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to Jewish people and to Jewish people only. And then Luke, the writer of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, the, the larger name for it, introduces us to this man named Cornelius who had been sent to the city of Caesarea. Now you need to know something about Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman provincial capital of Israel, then known at that time in the Roman system as Palestina Prima. Herod had built this particular city. He named it after his patron, Caesar Augustus. And so it was a political city. It was different from the religious capital of Jerusalem. Located on the Mediterranean Sea, Herod had built an artificial port there, and it was a beautiful city with gleaming brand new buildings. And for these reasons, the Roman army had chosen Caesarea as its base of operations in Israel during this time. Caesarea was also located about 39 miles directly north of a city named Joppa, where we will find Peter in a few minutes, also on the Mediterranean Sea. Cornelius, we are told, was a centurion. Centurions were considered the backbone of the Roman army. If you're Italian, this is the first time that, that your background and, and your heritage is mentioned here. All the Italians could give a little shout for Cornelius. But he was, he was part of the Italian regiment that was made up of about 600 soldiers. So, so think of this. This is a dominant presence of the Roman army in, in Israel. And they were using Caesarea as their base. Within that regiment of 600 soldiers, there would be six what were called centuries. Centuries were uh, groups of somewhere between 80 and, and up to 100 soldiers, and these soldiers were called legionnaires. Each century was led by a centurion. That's where that name comes from. These were legionnaires who had, who had worked their way up through the ranks, being rewarded for dedication and courage, and had now been put in charge of other men who were starting where they once started. Centurions were influential and they were very well paid. A little bit of research reveals that a centurion was usually paid about 5,000 days wages uh, each year, which meant that was about 20 times more than the average legionnaire or soldier. A handful of senior centurions were paid 10,000 denarii or 10,000 days wages each year. So this tells us a little bit about Cornelius. He was wealthier than the average bear. He was influential. He was successful. And to get to be a centurion, they had to be highly regarded by the people above them in the army and also by the people who were below them. Now Luke adds another detail that was unusual about this particular Italian centurion. Cornelius was devoutly seeking God and needed the rest of the message. Luke tells us that he and his whole family were devout toward God and they were generous toward the poor. This meant that he was worshiping the God of Israel as he had discovered him, probably through some of the local rabbis and the leaders and perhaps even attending the synagogue and he was regularly calling upon God in prayer. But he did not understand the message of Jesus yet, which is where Peter would come in. As he was praying on this one day that is described, an angel appeared to him in a vision and told him to send servants to find Peter in the city of Joppa. Luke tells us that he and his whole family were devout, and so he was gathering them to come and to listen to Peter when 
Peter would show up. Saying yes to the Lord, Cornelius sent for Peter right away. He sent two servants and one soldier on a journey that was about 39 miles each way. So the first thing that we observe is that Cornelius was a seeker. He was looking for more direction from God. But here's the second clashing perspective. Peter, at this time, wasn't interested in people who were different. Verse 11 picks this up. It describes a vision that Peter received the day after Cornelius' vision. It says he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. One of the things we quickly discover is that these two people that we're introduced to here in the opening part of chapter 10 were separated by a cultural bias. Now, Peter had been governed by patterns that were dictated by Old Testament laws that restricted the diet of Jewish people and they were focusing on foods that were clean versus unclean. Those that had been declared clean, they could eat. Those who were considered to be unclean, they were to, to stay away from. We call this a kosher diet. But rabbinic traditions had led to what was called the poison of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. This was a view that Jewish Israel held an exclusive place among all the people groups of the world. And so therefore, the Jewish people were to have as little contact or as little to do with non-Jewish people as possible. Jewish society had sort of erected an, um, an ideological wall between the Jewish people and all of their neighbors who were not Jews themselves, the average Gentile. They sought to put distance between themselves and this group and to, to, to view the Gentiles as being unclean people. Peter had adopted this prevailing social attitude of the first century Jewish culture. Now, the Old Testament itself did not restrict Jews from having contact with, Jewish, with Gentile people. They were told that there were certain foods that were unclean, but not that people groups as a whole were unclean. So this was a tradition that had developed that was different from the laws of Scripture itself. And Jesus certainly didn't behave this way. He praised a centurion's faith in the city of Capernaum, even declaring that he'd not seen such faith in all Israel. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 8 or in Luke chapter 7. So Peter would have to be freed from his view of what was socially acceptable behavior in order to follow where the Lord was leading him next. Practically, this meant that Peter's cultural bias was in the way of the gospel advancement that God was planning. Now, on the heels of this clash between the viewpoints of these two different people, one who's a seeker, one who's not open at that moment to a Gentile uh, person coming into his field of practice or into his sphere of influence, and God was sending a vision to both because he had something in mind for both of them. From this, we can identify four gospel-advancing factors that are still important for us today that we learn from this scenario with Peter and with Cornelius. The question that runs behind this is, what changed Peter's perspective? 
what changed Peter's viewpoint or his mind and that began to clear away this particular bias that kept him away from non-Jewish people? The first factor was a clear and compelling vision. So this chapter of Acts twice describes Peter's vision. The first time, Luke is giving it in a narrative form and telling us what happened. The second time it appears, Peter himself is describing the vision. And he relates it this way in verses 27 to 29. While talking with him, in other words, while talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Now here's what's going on with these words. By the time that Peter had arrived in Caesarea with the soldiers Cornelius had sent, he now fully understood the meaning of the vision that he had received a couple of days before. In the vision, Peter had seen this sheet with four corners lowered down to him, and on the sheet were several non-kosher animals. And then a voice would tell him, Peter, get up, kill, uh, slay the animal, and, and eat. And each time Peter would respond by saying, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I'm not going to take these animals to the butcher and put these things on my table. But this has to get repeated three times. And after the third time that this whole scenario plays out, all of a sudden the, the sheet is taken away and it's gone. And so he's left to wonder, what does this mean? There, there's no immediate explanation. Since Cornelius had been living in Caesarea, he would surely have seen the pattern of how Jews avoided close contact with non-Jews. But this vision had allowed Peter to see that his bias was based on man-made law, not on the expectation of God. No sooner had this vision completed itself, there's a knock on his door, and the soldier and the two servants of Cornelius arrive at Peter's home, and they call out from the gate, and and Peter answers, and, and he lets them in. And he tells Cornelius that he willingly went with the soldiers and he willingly entered the home of the centurion because his personal vision had been instantly expanded, making him able to embrace God's multi-ethnic plan. This is a fascinating uh, description here because there are times when throughout history people have had this idea that God works through one set group of people and and maybe not another. And God's view has always been to bring the gospel to all kinds of people and to cause people to be united in Christ and united by their faith that that causes us to rise above all of the cultural differences that sometimes divide us. Here's the second factor. A recognition that God is always at work. Verse 30 picks this up. Cornelius answered and he said, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. A little bit later, he says, send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. So I sent for you immediately. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Peter and and the disciples had not been cultivating 
the heart of Cornelius. They'd had no contact with Cornelius. But he was seeing firsthand that God had been at work behind the scenes in Cornelius' life. Learning about the beliefs and customs of the Jewish people, Cornelius had come to a faith in the God of Israel. People like this were referred to in that day as God-fearers. It meant that they weren't uh, Jews by birth, but they had somehow attached themselves to the people of faith and said, these people have discovered the living God, the creator God who made all this happen, and their message makes sense. Their book has truth for me. And so they would stand at a, at a distant court in the temple court, courtroom system, farther away from those who were uh, naturally part of the people of Israel, and they would listen in, and there was a place made for them, but it was always at a distance. And Cornelius had, be, had started praying to the God of Israel, the God of creation. A man of wealth and influence, he had also demonstrated his compassion for the poor. And now this angel appears to him, telling him that his prayers have been heard. That's good news. And that God had seen his action, and that God had something that he wanted Cornelius to hear. And so he was to send emissaries to the city of Joppa to find this man named Simon Peter. Such specific instructions. The city is identified, the name of the person is identified, the name of the person with whom Peter was staying was identified as well. When Cornelius acts on that, what we discover is that God was working in the heart and mind of Cornelius long before Peter was even ready to go to his home. Long before Peter was even ready to tell him about the grace that he'd been commissioned to deliver all around the world. This raises a question for us today. Is it possible that God continues to send people to us today? I don't know about you, but I think he does. I think there are moments that happen in our lives that are not just coincidence. When all of a sudden you realize God has put somebody in your path with whom you have a natural connection, with whom you have common interests, and a friendship develops, and over the course of that friendship, you start talking about things that matter to each of you, and it's an opportunity for you to share what God has been doing in your own life. I believe that God does this over and over and over again. So we must always prepare ourselves to be ready for those moments, expecting that God will do that. Times change, but the essential questions of life that people ask are the same from age to age. People ask, why am I here? What is my purpose? Is there really a God who, who cares about me? How can I find forgiveness? How can I start over when I've messed things up in my life? So the first two factors that we discover are, are a clear and compelling vision for what God is up to, a recognition that God is always at work. But here's the third of these, these factors. An understanding that the gospel is for all nations. Verses 34 through 36 take us a little bit farther in the story. Then Peter began to speak. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This whole event was a catalytic experience for Peter. 
When he saw and heard from this room full of Cornelius' friends and family members, all of a sudden everything clicked. He knew why he was there. He knew why he'd had this strange vision just a couple of days before. And so he announces the verdict of that, the conclusion of that. God accepts people from every nation, he says. Suddenly, Peter could see the international reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ unfolding before him. This wasn't simply good news just for Peter's people. It was good news for the entire world. This kind of understanding connects us with God's longtime goal. Think back into the Old Testament scriptures for those of you who are familiar with them. In Genesis, Abraham had been told that he would be the father of many nations. That's what that name Abraham actually means. And that all people groups would be blessed through him. The prophet Isaiah in chapters 42 and 49 of his book tells how God's people had been described as, quote, a light for the Gentiles. This is why in John chapter 3, we read those memorable words, for God so loved the world, right? The world, not just a few, not just a tribe, but the world. That's why he sent his son. Last night, I, I watched a Netflix documentary about the life of Billy Graham. A, a friend had told me about it, and, and I wanted to watch it. It was kind of fascinating because it, it tells the story of how Graham's ministry developed and then expanded from U.S. citywide crusades to these international campaigns. In particular, Mr. Graham endured significant measures of criticism for some of the decisions that he made about the location of his crusades. Specifically, he was criticized when he went to Russia, to Iron Curtain nations during the Cold War era, and even to China. The complaint was that he would be used for propaganda purposes in these lands. But he was willing to take that risk, believing that God had sent him and that God loved people all across the world. Some of you know that Alan Emery Jr. had been the president of the Billy Graham Association. He used to live close by here in East Weymouth. Alan told me that he was one of the ones who had advised Mr. Graham not to go to Russia. His concern was that he would be used negatively and that the negative press would in some way hurt this whole gospel movement. But he was glad that Graham had been right and that he had been wrong about that decision. Alan showed me a letter that he kept in his files. It was a letter from President Ronald Reagan telling him that Billy Graham had done more to bring about the collapse of the Soviet dominance than anybody else. Now, Graham didn't want people to see that, and he was going to destroy the letter, but Alan convinced him to give it to him, and he had it in his files. And he'd made the promise that he wouldn't release the letter until after Billy Graham had died. The problem was Alan died about six years before uh, Mr. Graham did, and so the letter remains buried in his files. But I saw it when I was in my early 20s. And it was an amazing thing. Here's the, the fourth factor. An expectation that Jesus has sent us as his witnesses. So verses 39, 40, and 41 bring us to the final factor in here. Peter, in the midst of his message, tells Cornelius and his friends, we are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now, Peter hadn't gone alone. He'd brought six of his friends from the city of Joppa with him. 
He says they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter was saying that he was a witness and his friends were also witnesses of the grace that God had brought into their lives. But he was a witness of the risen Jesus as well as seeing the life and ministry of Jesus as it played out. Peter took what Cornelius had already heard from being in Caesarea and he acknowledges there's some things that, that Cornelius already knew. So he says, you know the message God sent to the people announcing the good news. Peter knew that Cornelius and his friends had heard the basics about Jesus. It would have been impossible to live in Caesarea only 10 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus and not to have heard some of that story. And then he added this pivotal thought. We are witnesses of everything he did. The most effective tool that Peter had was his own eyes and his own ears and his memory. He could tell about the things that he had witnessed authentically. And then he could leave the decision up to others about what they would do with that, whether they would believe that message or not. In the same way, the most effective tool that you and I have is our own personal stories of how God is working in our lives. We are not responsible for somebody else's story. We are not responsible necessarily to unfold every theological argument that people could come up with. But each of us is expected to bear witness to the ways that Jesus has impacted our lives. If you're here last Sunday, I think of Andy Sogolow's story that, that he told here as we stood in front of the congregation of how when he was working in his first job in Texas, that his brother had become a Christian before him, both growing up in a Jewish home, and that Andy started to ask some tough questions, and he realized as he, as he considered some of the complexities of the gospel that only Jesus could have done some of these things. Only Jesus would have had that kind of wisdom if he was the Son of God. And he put his faith in Jesus. Your story is unique, and it matters to the people whom you know. It matters to the people whom you work with. It matters to your neighbors, because they care about you. And they are watching you to see whether what you claim to believe is actually lived out, and whether it makes a difference in your life. See, what we're learning here is that when we say yes, we often discover how God has been at work behind the scenes. That's the main idea. Whenever we say yes to God, when he nudges us in a new direction, we start to become brought in and initiated to the work that God has been doing that has been hidden until now. And he always seems to work that way. He wants us to buy in first and then he reveals more. So Peter told his story. And the Holy Spirit fell on that crowd and it became evident that Cornelius and all of his friends believed. They had a second Pentecost experience where it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was operating. And the next day, Peter baptized Cornelius and several members of his household, which probably included some of the soldiers and the servants, as well as family members. 
By the way, if, if you have recently come to faith and you've come to believe, we're going to do something on Palm Sunday that's become a part of the tradition of, of the church. In preparing for Easter, we're creating an opportunity for people to be baptized as believers. And if you have questions about that or you'd like to be included in that, stop me on the way out. I'd love to tell you more about that. But here's the deal. Whenever we say yes to God, there's something that he wants to reveal to us on the other side. There's some way that he wants to use us more on the other side of that decision. When we say yes, we often discover how God has already been working behind the scenes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for including your people in the work that you are doing. You could have created a process where you just mystically or spiritually zapped people into some new kind of spiritual awareness. But thank you for doing it through ordinary people like us. Thank you for communicating the message of your love for people and of Jesus' saving work on the cross through ordinary stories like our own. I pray that as we read through these discoveries of Peter and we look at how he had to have his bias lifted, that the bias of fear would be lifted from us. Uh, and that the bias that sometimes sets in about different people groups would be lifted away from us. And that you would give us a, a heart and eyes to see how broadly you want to work within our communities and within our world. Thank you for reaching all kinds of different people. We thank you for the people whom you will add to this fellowship in coming years. We pray that you will do so with whatever kind of diversity seems to spread throughout our, our region and that you would give us the courage, the faith, the boldness, and the leading to reach across all of the kind of natural barriers that we are capable of setting up. In short, Give us a vision for how you love all kinds of people. Thank you for bringing so many of us to understand uh, the call of Jesus on our lives and the grace that he brings. Equip us, Lord, with stories of, of personal change, personal growth, personal freedom from the things that bind us to be able to reach our neighbors at their point of need as well. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name.